0: Hi and welcome to season one of the Mental Fitness Podcast with me, Anthony Taylor. This is the podcast where we look at what it takes to be mentally fit. That intersection between mental toughness, emotional intelligence and good mental health. We interview some of the best people from the sporting, business and psychological worlds to bring you the stories and suggestions on how to build your mental fitness. Here's a snapshot of what we've got in store for you this week.
1: I just found the whole dancing and ice literally like a game of rugby. You get the nerves beforehand in the tunnel before you run out at Twickenham or, or a World Cup or facing the hacker of the All Blacks. You get those nerves. I would have those nerves standing on my blades in the tunnel waiting to go out as if you're about to play a game of rugby because you're thinking, well, what if John Alonso run, runs over the top of me? What if, you know, what if I play shit? What if I get taken? What if this happens? And the same same in the tunnel of life's game. You're like, what if I fall over? What if I drop her? what if i what if i get voted out all of those sort of things
0: so if you like what you hear over the rest of this episode then please join the conversation with me on instagram at Taylor 72 or on linkedin where you can find me under anthony taylor mental fitness and please subscribe it takes just a minute but it's going to help the podcast reach more people okay let's crack on with the show So, my guest today is Kieran Bracken. Kieran is a World Cup winning former rugby union uh, footballer who played at Scrum Half for Saracens, Bristol, and Waterloo. He made his England debut in November 1993 against the All Blacks, where infamously a stamp from Jamie Joseph seriously injured his ankle, putting him out of action for three months and then leaving him with a permanent weakness. He won a total of 51 England caps and captained the team on three occasions retiring from international rugby in 2004. He then starred in and won ITV celebrity ice dancing competition, Dancing on Ice, in in 2007 with partner Melanie Lambert. In the semi-final, he received the highest score in the history of Dancing on Ice at that time. He's now a successful business owner and coach to some of the best young rugby talent. So, Kieran, thanks very much for joining us today on the uh, the Mental Fitness Podcast. Um, I'm going to start off by asking you the question which is the same I'll ask all the guests, which is, what does mental toughness mean to you?
1: Well, it can mean so many different things. But obviously, being a sportsman, uh, mental toughness is probably one of the key indicators of success and failure. Um, I think from my point of view, mental toughness is, you know, recalling and looking back over my career, you're trying to work out the moments um, that are important, you showed mental toughness. But I think Probably the most important thing about for a sportsman is, is not when things are going well, when things are going badly and uh, it's all very well, you get picked for England, you know, you're man of the match, you're, you're touring and everything's great. The, the, the time that you need mental toughness is when things aren't going well. And I think that separates the sportsmen, the ones who make it and the ones who don't make it mental toughness. Do you have it within your soul to dig really deep right down into the depths of your soul and can you come out of it? Can you dust yourself off? And that can be a lot of different things. So it can be a physical thing, but it could also be a mental thing, you know? So from my point of view in my career, I had a lot of injuries and at really, really bad times as well. So I'd be playing for England, and doing really well, suddenly get an injury. I'd I'd miss the next few matches and then suddenly Matt Dawson or someone else come in play really well and I'd spend the next year trying to get my place again then I'd go see a doctor and they'd say right you've it's your second back operation you need to retire you come out of the meeting and you just say no I'm not going to accept that I'm going to come back and play and so you have these moments in your career and I look back and people say what you know what what your proudest moments you know It, it wasn't Winning a Grand Slam, it wasn't captaining England, it wasn't winning the World Cup. It was none of that. It was, it was. When I look back, I just think to myself, "How did I, how did I do that? How did I come out of that?" You know, at that time, there was no such thing as mental toughness. There was no such. So you're either, you're either a warrior or you're not a warrior. And so, I, I guess, really, it was a very different era to what we all know now. And uh, but looking back, I think the proudest moments aren't the medals, but are, are moments in my career when. It was there's, you, you've got no more options. This, this is the end. So whether you're getting dropped by England, whether you're getting told you need to retire on on two to three separate occasions, and you walk out and you you work out strategy, you say right, what do I want to do here? Well, I'm not accepting that. I'm not accepting the doctor saying you can't play. I'm not accepting that I'm not good enough to play for England. That I'm too old. Um, and I just fought back. And I think that, that, that you know that mental toughness to not to accept what was in front of me. And I think that's the measure of every person in life, really, because, uh, you know, it's about being able to dust yourself off. And I I keep saying this when I I meet, you know, teams and businesses and, you know, they're celebrating the end of year, you know, how well they've done. And actually, that's not the sort of like the testing time, the testing time of a business and any sportsman is when things aren't going well. But I think deep down as well, I think it's, uh, it's also the way you're brought up. You know, I brought up with three siblings, a bigger brother, and he was pretty tough on me. So I had to always up my game amazingly in a lot of sports. The sportsmen who do well are the younger brothers because they have to have this mental toughness to beat their older brother. And I think somewhere deep down over the years, I was always trying to beat my brother. And, and that sort of attitude of got to be better, got to be faster, got to be stronger, got to win. Um, was brought about by the family, really. And, and I think being a sportsman, you want to win. And I hated losing, but having a bigger brother who was stronger than me definitely helped. But from a mental point of view, mental toughness, I guess, really, it was, it was, was, it's also dealing with pressure, you know, dealing with pressure and the high moments. You know, you're in New Zealand, you've got two players sent off, you've got eight minutes to go, You're ahead on the scoreboard and you've got to make that, you know, extra more tackles. You've got to work harder because two of your players are sent off. So something kicks in and and some of its nature, you know, the fight or flight response. Some of it really is a case of you just find a way to to do it. And you don't know how you did it, but you just do. You know, my first game against the All Blacks, 1993, I uh, partially dislocated him out completely out and then went back in again and i was would have had to come off for Matt dawson and i just didn't want him to get his cap so i i basically hobbled through the whole game you weren't allowed to have have people on the bench then so yeah it was just a case of um somewhere deep down sort of like an animal instinct type thing when i look back was certainly playing a part in mental toughness but it can be so many different things you know doing the extra training, you know, doing all of those things to be the best, to win, getting up early in the morning, training harder than everyone else, doing that bit extra that that you know that other people aren't doing, training on Christmas Day, on New Year's Day, not drinking, not going out, not doing the things you want to do with your mates. So, yeah, it was just a, it's just a combination of so many different things. But I think the, the, the biggest thing for me The proudest thing that I feel is that every time I had a no and every time there was there was no more avenues to go down. I just found a way to break through that no and found a way to get picked back for England or defy the doctors when they said no one's ever come back from that. Or, you know, even when I felt horrible, I knew that if I did that extra training, it was the the key to my success.
0: How important was having a clear goal in mind? You know, Stephen Covey talks about, I think it's his second habit, having the a clear end in mind or the end in mind. When you were going through those dark periods, did you always have some goal to that you that you wanted to achieve? And and how important was that in terms of being able to do whatever you needed to do?
1: Yeah, do you know what goals just for me seem a bit weird really because um you know, I sit there and talk to my kids about goals. I coach people. I talk about goals. I coach teams. Our goal is this, but in reality, you know, when you're in when you're in the moment, you don't sit down there and look to the future and go, "Okay, I want to play for England. I want to play for the Lions. I want to win a World Cup. I want to captain England." You know, I, I kind of feel that people who do that and spend time on that, they miss they miss the here and now. Look, when I, when I first started playing rugby, rugby wasn't professional. So, I, you know, my goal was to play for... I wanted to play for England. It was a dream. Let's call it a dream. But then I didn't go when I played, oh, now I want to play 20 caps or I want to play in a World Cup. Or I want to go on a Lions tour. You're in the moment and you just you just have to look at what's next. And that is the next game, the next tour, the next selection. And I guess a lot of people do this goal setting. But I sometimes think, you know, I sometimes think it it can be worthless.
0: Okay. How do you mean?
1: Well, only in the sense that um, you kind of know. If if you say to a young kid at 11, 12, you know, and he's a good rugby player, what do you want to do? I want to play for England. Okay. But you don't kind of go, I want to play for England and I I want to be England's captain. I want to win a World Cup. I want to do all this. So to do that, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Because doing X, Y, and Z, they're going to do anyway because they have a dream of doing something. Right of achieving something, and I think the setting goals is about measuring achievement. If that makes sense, yeah. And in a way, in sport, it's like saying, uh, "Okay, I want to play rugby for England, and you're not good enough, you know, and you're nowhere near good enough, but you're going to try." You know, is that realistic? Well, it's not realistic. If it's realistic, I think short-term goals are much more important than long-term goals, and that might be very different in business because in business. You're interviewing somebody you say, you know, what do you want to be in, in 20 years' time? I want to be like you. I want to, I want to be the CEO and sit in yours. I mean, what a load of bollocks that is, you know. At, at the end of the day, they might, after five years, hate it and go on to something else. So I kind of feel that um, goals, when you set sort of long-term ambitious goals, you, you miss the here and now. The most important thing is every day, am I doing something that's going to get me better to realise my dreams? And those dreams being, let's just say, play for England. And I kind of feel that if you have a template of like a 10-year plan or a 20-year plan, so what happens when you kind of suddenly go, oh, well, you know, you're injured knee, you can't play rugby anymore. You've shattered your goals. Is that your fault? It's not your fault. I I, I always sort of push people. So I'm I'm doing quite a lot with St. Albans. I coach at St. Albans and I'm I'm talking to, um, at about 20 Five high-level international sportsmen doing all sorts of cross-country and athletics, and when they talk about their goals, I find it amazing they go, you know, I want to, you know, I want to do this, I want to do that, and then, then I look at their training program and I look at what they're doing, and then I, I kind of say, well, you've said that, but have you really thought about this year, what you could achieve this year? And I think when people get long-term goals, they forget the here and now and the imminent. You know the the importance of what's happening now, and and also uh, in sport, things can get taken away from you very very quickly and very very easily. So I'm a, I'm a believer, and it might not be what you want to hear. I'm a believer that you you, you sit down, and you go, okay, I want to be an international rugby player, I want to be a CEO, I want to be this. That's fine, but. What do I have to do in the here and now to get there? Okay, well, I have to practice my passing. I have to get fit. I have to analyse games. I have to um, play well in games. I have to change the way I'm playing because they're doing that. And then you make it very short term. Okay, in the next, you know, eight weeks, this is what I'm going to do to do that. And, and then after eight weeks, right, I've improved that. I'm going to do this, that. And you keep doing that and building those blocks and Obviously, it might look good in a meeting. What do you want to be? Well, I want to be I want to be this, I want to be England captain. Okay, fine, but how are you going to get there? And it's how is much more important, and then you, you've got the other end of the scale of the how I think is much really important, is where people sort of don't shoot for the stars. So I'm coaching a, a rugby player and who I think could play international rugby. And when he um put down on his form what his goals were, he said to play professional rugby. And I was like, Well you know, you could play for your country. And he was like, really? And I'm like, well, if you don't believe it, then you're probably never going to believe it. So you have to change your outlook. But I'm just a believer that long-term goals and dreaming and stuff like that is all very well and good. It's about the here and now, the building blocks of what's happening right now. Do you know what I mean? And I guess I've been in your take in business. In business, you know, you you have a goal of obviously you want to be successful and financially rewarded and the older you get, the more you realize it's not about the financial reward. It's about it's the reward that the job gives you in the end that you feel happy with what you're doing. Irrelevance of the money. You only realize that when you were um, at a later stage in life. There was a, a lovely quote on Twitter, which I used. It was like the first 25 years you spend basically judging your performance on your grades the next 25 years you judge your your performance on how much money you can make and you're making the following 25 years you realize that that was all a bag of shit and that more important is the people you spend your time with and then the last 25 years you realize actually what's most important in life is um is actually what you've given back to society and life and you only realize that when it's near the end <laughs> but i when I read that, I, I was like, that's so true. I mean, when I was at school, it was like, my dad was like, you need to get your grades. You need to go to university. You need to get a job. You need to, you need to be successful. You need to get get a job, it's gonna pay well. You need to be a lawyer. So I went on to be a lawyer. Um, you know, Rugby wasn't a profession, so that was a part-time and that was all good, but it was, you need to do this. And I, and I measured my success all based on what my parents said was the right thing to do. And I kind of think with COVID and the way the world is now, I think we've got to change the boundaries of what success is. Success can be leaving school at 16 and setting up your own business and doing something that you love, whether it's financially rewarding or not. Or even if it is, you just don't go to university. You do something different. You get an apprenticeship and then 10 years later, you're the CEO. There's so many different ways of, of getting to the end point. And I think when I when I sort of saw that tweet, it just made me realise that we measure success based on our family, our parents and what we think the world is. And, and actually, in the end, when we're about to be in a coffin, it's nothing like what we thought.
0: I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a couple of things you said there. One is around the goals. You know, you talked about those goals. I think you're right. I think too many people focus on the outcome goal rather than focusing on the process goals. Like you said, what's, what am I going to do that's going to get me there? So stop being obsessed with the outcome. But what are the three things I can do today that are going to move me forward? what's in my control to influence and, and not worry about the other stuff. And I think you're right. I remember being 40 years of age. I was I was about, I'd been pretty broke from a divorce. Uh, you know, my mum and dad had just been made redundant. I'm thinking, what the hell do I want? What? You know, I've been chasing what I thought was success. And I got really kind of nowhere with it. It wasn't making me happy. And then started to change career completely, doing what I do now, absolutely loving it. And then the success just takes care of itself. And it is it's about giving back you know what i do now with this podcast and everything else is about helping people achieve more than they thought themselves capable of that's my whole reason so you're right when you find that meaning that's kind of um, really important going back to some of the most of our listeners probably won't know that we were at school together so back in those 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 dark days when we were at school and it's cold in the west wing or wherever were you dreaming of playing you know for england because it was apparent to us all back then that you know you were going to probably go and barring injury, go and play for England. So did you have dreams about running out of Twickenham? And did those did he has a visualization, even when you're coming back from your injuries as a professional player, has the visualization of running out, pulling on a top, whatever it is, has that played an important part in that kind of mental toughness?
1: Not really. I mean, I think, you know, I was never a watcher of rugby. You know, the rugby would have been on the Four Nations or whatever it was years ago when I was at school. I don't think even, we even watched it. Probably we were we were out messing around or doing other stuff. I never was never really a fan of rugby. I knew whether England won or lost or whatever, but we didn't watch. I mean, when did we get a chance at school really to watch it? Probably never. I played England schools, so obviously I played to a high level. I played a year young as well. and But it's funny because the, the step up from school rugby to men's rugby is massive. Like, it is absolutely massive. So it's such a big step. And that's why kids play England schools. So they think they're the dogs bollocks. And then suddenly they join like like I did. I, I joined Bristol uh, rugby club from the university and I was playing for England 21s. And then I turn up and there were real men around me. And you know, it was real men, it was six foot eight blokes who were scaffolders, who were like, you know, 19 stone. And if they grab you, then you you know you know about it. So almost every training session there'd be a fight and there was a real man you know so i'm only 19 i'm thinking holy shit so it was a massive step up and then when i started playing in the premiership at 19 it was such a step up from school rugby but i never thought then oh i'm at this level i'm good enough i played in schools therefore i'll be able to play for England. no i was just like shit i used to be you know a big fish in a small pond now i'm tiny fish in a massive pond look how great these players are. You know, you play against the Gus Scotts and all of these players who are legends and you sort of, you you realise how good they are compared to what you're used to. And you, basically, when you're in that environment, you just have to step it up yourself to get on parity with them, you know? So I stepped it up and then I started playing well for my club and every now and again, papers would be saying, you know, there'd be a headline, Kieran's scored the winning try against Bath or Quins or whatever and playing well should be able to shout with England next, you know, you read it and you go, Oh, that'd be great. But, and then it all came quite quickly to me within a year, someone got injured and sometimes a sport, you get a bit of luck, but yeah, it, I, I was never at that time. In fact, almost to the extent that I never, when I was 19, believed that I would play for England imminently. I thought I'd have a chance if I played at that level for three or four years, I might have a chance But at the time, I I didn't go, oh, I'm going to play for England. Looking back, I probably should have had more confidence and looked around and said, no, I'm good enough, you know. So it was not a case of, like, nowadays, where you can see someone playing for England schools, they're at an academy, they're training with, say, Saracen's academy, like my eldest son is, he's with the academy. And you can see a pathway, you can see him with the peers, and you know in a few years' time they're going to be there. And it wasn't like that when I was younger. So I never sort of lay awake at night, pretty much ever, thinking, "Wouldn't it be amazing to play for England?" I guess the only time really I thought of that was, I suppose, when I was twenty and I was, I was, I was tearing it up in the Premiership and I was scoring tries and I was making things happen and then clubs were phoning me up to sign for them and you know, so it was all, it was all very exciting, but I, I wasn't going, I'm, "I'm going to be on TV or I'm going to play for England." Not at all. It was there was such a big step up from school rugby that it just seemed too far a step for me to take at the time I did, but I, I managed to. So it was, it was very exhilarating.
0: I read somewhere that at some point early on, I guess, in your career, Ireland said you weren't good enough. Tell me a story about that and, and how did you react to that?
1: What happened was I went for, um, when I was 19, I went for a trial at London Irish for the Irish exiles, keeping my options open and like there was no England rugby and stuff. And I, my dad, obviously Irish parents are Irish I was born in Ireland I turned up to this thing and I played for 10 minutes I got knocked out though I got knocked out in the trial didn't know where it was or whatever gave me a pint afterwards so that was good but I just uh, I think they they sort of phoned up and said ah, you know when you're able to play a full game we'll have a look at you in a, in a year years time or so and then within a year I was playing for England but it wasn't quite like They phoned me up and said, you're not good enough.
0: All right, interesting. So we talked a lot about rugby, but you've also done a lot more. So tell me about when you went to be so successful with dancing on ice. You know, that's right out of your comfort zone. I mean, obviously, you're a talented sportsman, physical attributes, all the rest of it. But how was that?
1: That was mad. That was really, really mad. And it was a great time of my life. i just retired. And actually, like physically... I think it was a very good match for me. Low center of gravity. So quite short like yourself, uh, short legs. And in ice skating, if you've got long limbs, it's a bit harder, but I had absolutely no fear because I've had the shit kicked out of me for you know 15 years. So the idea of falling on the ice was absolutely nothing to me. And all of the other celebrities you know, they were, re- they were shitting themselves about falling over, and I spent my time falling over. And I think the more you fall over, the more you learn, the more your body learns to stay on your feet, and the less fear factor you have of falling. And then I think the other thing is, sportsmen do really well in reality TV shows, because think about what, sports, what sportsmen do, by and large. They have to work out a strategy to win at the weekend, but every weekend. And that strategy is different every single weekend as to who they're playing for. And they're used to being under pressure and they're used to having to do something when it really matters. And I just found the whole dancing and ice literally like a game of rugby, right? I know it sounds weird, but you get the nerves beforehand in the tunnel before you run out at Twickenham or or a World Cup or facing the Hacker or the All Blacks. You get those nerves. I would have those nerves standing on my blades in the tunnel waiting to go out as if you're about to play a game of rugby because you're thinking straight away, like in rugby, you're like, well, what if John O'Leary runs over the top of me? What if, you know, what if I play shit? What if I get taken? What if this happens? And then same, same in the tunnel of ice game, you're like, what if I fall over? What if I drop her? What if I, what if I get voted out? All of those sort of things. And then suddenly they go, please welcome. And then you, you're on. The whistle goes, you're on and you've got a routine and they always make it every week a bit more difficult, a bit harder for you to do. And they know what your limits are. They keep pushing you every week. And that's exactly what rugby was for me every week, finding out a way to win a strategy to win under pressure in the moment. And we were used to doing that. So for me, it was, uh, I'm not going to say it was a doddle, but the whole experience was just a continuation of my rugby career. That sounds really crass and a bit weird and that, that can't be true but it was so you know I looked around me Stephen Gately uh, Lee Sharp all these other people around me you know they were all shitting themselves like absolutely shitting themselves they really struggled with the the pressure of having to do something that they weren't comfortable doing in front of millions and thought I know I just kept I'm gonna fall over I'm gonna do this bad and, that, bad. and that for me I lapped that up I was like in a way, I was like, yeah, so what? I was like, yeah, okay, I could fall over. I could do shit, I'm nervous, but I'm gonna do it. I remember a few of them were like drinking shots of remedy, you know, like these remedy things. And and actually, in a way, when you're in the back, back behind the stage, that's no different to being in the changing room before a massive match. Mass. There's no difference whatsoever because you've got the butterflies because you've got the fight or flight. The flight is the part of you which says, you're not gonna do well, you're gonna do badly, you're gonna embarrass yourself, do all of that sort of thing. A bit like before an exam, you get those nerves. It's like, have I studied enough? Is it gonna be hard? Am I gonna fail? I'm never gonna... So everyone gets those self doubt, everyone gets those nerves, but I use that. I was like beforehand, I was like, this is great. I did well because physically I was in good shape. I wasn't scared. I can dance a little bit. I'm only joking, not really, but I didn't have any grace. But um, I was the best ice skater because I'll tell you why. Instead of doing the four hours a day you're supposed to do, I did five. So, you know, if they did, said do that, I'd do more. And I practiced really, really hard. And that was the lesson for me. The more I practiced, the luckier I got in ice skating. And it's, it's the same in sport and it's the same in business. You know, the more I work, the harder I work, the harder better prepared I am, the more successful I am. I, you know, I think about sport. I was interviewing Sean O'Brown, an English rugby player, is playing for England at the moment. And I just put it to her, I said, is there such thing as luck in sport? And she went, no such thing as luck. No such thing as luck. I said, okay, the only lucky thing is when the ball might bounce slightly differently or someone might trip over. He said, you see the luck and you think that was lucky. Well, actually, in all honesty, if it wasn't for all that training, if it wasn't for everything you were doing for the past 10 years to get you in that position... You know, then you, you make your own look. It's true. And I, I agree with that. You make your own look. And it's the same in business. You might think you were lucky to, some might think, oh, you got to, lucky to get that deal over the line. Well, well, were you really lucky? I mean, really, were you lucky? Or was it your tenacity? Was it your talent for bringing it over the line? Was it your um, bringing people together who didn't want to come together? You know, what was it that made it work? It wasn't that someone just handed it to you and you just, it was all easy. So I, I don't believe in luck. I believe life can throw at you difficulties and it's about how you respond to them. And and sportsmen, you know, even in golf, you say, oh, I was lucky this, lucky. No, not at all. It's the 100,000 hours you've done the last few months that, that create the luck.
0: Yeah. So in terms of, I think some of the things picked up on there is around, you know, what people can take away from this and maybe aren't sports people. Is around putting yourself out there, uh, getting that mental agility to, you know, change. You talked about, you know, different strategy every week. You've got to execute that. You've got to do it under pressure. It's about constantly reviewing your progress, constantly reevaluating about where you're going, what your plans are, and adapting to the changes. And then I think like you talked about putting that practice in. So if you've got to deliver a presentation to the board, make sure you haven't done two hours of practice. Make sure you put in three hours of practice. And creating that kind of own look.
1: Yeah, I think I think you make your own look. You know, you can say there can be things that you can be fortunate, but you make your own fortune. I think, and I, and I think the other thing is, you know, people think there's a massive difference between sport and business, and I actually think there's almost no difference whatsoever. I think it's sport and business are so so correlated together. In business, you have people lone wolves who who will do their own thing and and basically be very successful. Or you have people who are part of teams and you get sports where it's rugby, you need 15 people, or you get a javelin throws on his own, who's just doing javelin. But the concepts of success are all the same. You need to have some sort of DNA. You need to have some sort of talent to be able to do what you're doing, in sport and business, whatever you choose. But your success is marked about you revolving around your commitment not luck it's around your commitment your your attitude your dedication what are you like under pressure you know some sports people under pressure they 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 fold teams together they can't take it when they're one nil up and they just they can't take the pressure and they fold or they're top of the league and very quickly fold and other people do and it's the same in business you know it, it's a doggy dog world there's absolutely no difference. You know, you're in the same boat, you're competing against other people. There's a competition going on, whether it's you as an individual or you part of a team and, you know, to win, you've got to, you've got to find out, you know, you've got to put out the fires, you've got to jump over hurdles, you've got to make it work. And the other thing is uh, I learned another, like at the end of my career, which is a bit of a shame is um, no one gives a shit about, about what you've, been through no one cares about your backstory no one cares that someone's ill in your family or you've got mental health problems or no one gives a shit apart from your own wife and your kids and maybe they don't care that much i'm joking but do you know what i mean and i think a lot of people dwell in their own misery of their own life and, and actually um you know my message is that everyone going through like the shit the multi-billionaire you know, can't stand the money he's got and can't stand what he has to go through, you know. Um, so the life toils of, of of the guy without a house, you know, sitting on the side of a street with nothing, his life, you know, turmoils are the same as the billionaire. Everyone's got shit to deal with. But in the end, no one really gives a shit about your problems because there's much bigger problems elsewhere. And I think the sooner, I mean, I think my boys, I was training with my boys and it was it was actually... It was actually uh, it was hailing snow, right? About two weeks ago, and uh, I was doing I was doing like a little session with them with, with with the three of them, and uh, within three minutes, a bit like being at Stonehouse, they, could, they couldn't feel their hands. So after about ten minutes, they, they could hardly pass the ball. I'm freezing and I've got ten layers on, so I said right another twenty, and they would go I can't feel my hands, and I said all right let's just imagine for a moment right right now that there's a, a match right that you have to play in so are you not going to play because your hands are cold well it might be cancelled because of the weather well let's say it's not cancelled so you've got 80 minutes and you're moaning about doing five minutes passing and so they they passed the, these balls with very very numb hands and at the end of it I said to them all right so what did you learn from that and they were like uh, well, yeah, I suppose if you're going to play, it's the same for everyone in a game of rugby, isn't it? They're all going to have cold hands. And I said, well, exactly. And what about practicing in the cold? Do you think moaning helps? What does it make you feel? i tell you what you said to me. You said, I can't pass the ball. And I said, I know you can't pass the ball, but no one gives a shit that you can't pass the ball. All that you're saying is I can't pass the ball. So if you say you can't pass the ball, then you can't pass the ball. And that's why I made it do extra in the cold. And at the end of it, they were like, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. I said, because the other scrum half, by the way, his hands are really cold, really cold. And he's thinking, I can't pass the ball. And as soon as you get on the pitch and you know your hands are cold, you've got to say to yourself, he's going to be absolutely freezing. He's going to be shitting himself trying to pass that ball. I'm gonna go through this and I'm gonna pass really well, even in these terrible conditions. And that for me was quite a nice lesson, you know? But again, it just reminded me of life and business and and everything. It's like um, your own turmoils, your own fires, your own home life. No one gives a flying fuck about you other than you and your close ones. And the more you bring that into what you're doing, the less your chances of having success. And and um, you probably see that more in business. You'll be training people and they'll be saying, oh, he did this and she did that and they did that and da 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 and this is how it's affected me. And, I, you know, that's no different to the, the rugby player. And I remember this because every time I lost and every time we did badly, I always looked for someone else to blame, right? And, and you know what? Everyone does that. Everyone does that. Coaches do it captains do it you're in the change room oh he didn't play well he didn't do well did it did do you know he didn't do that well yourself but he missed the kick he losses the game and you sort of find reasons why it's not your fault and and actually i think that's part of nature i think that's humanity at its worst probably and it takes a real a strong soul not to look at themselves all the time all the things i've learned about life I've learned through sport and I kind of feel I wish I'd known a long time ago and sat down after a game knowing I didn't play that well. Instead of blaming the kicker, blaming myself, what can I do? What should I have done? And I think the same is in business, you know. Anytime there's things that go wrong, even if it's not your fault, look at yourself first. Don't point the finger. But just remember, no one gives a shit about how you feel.
0: I remember I was publishing my first book last year and uh, I was stalling over publishing it. And I was talking to a, a coach who, a guy who coaches me. And he basically said, Anthony, no one cares. What do you mean? He said, 90 possible way, he said, I like you, but no one cares. No one cares about you, but whatever they tell you to your face, no one cares. And I was like, oh, but I thought he was right. And then I came across a great quote, which was the 18, 40, 60 rule. At 18, you're obsessed with what people think about you. At 40, you stop caring. By the time you get to 60, you realise no one was thinking about you anyway because they're all worried about themselves so they don't actually like you're saying they don't give a shit about you and i think well you're right when when we absorb that lesson then we start worrying about the outcome so much you know you talked about dancing on ice you start worrying about what falling over or whatever else because a you put the practice in but b so what you know what's the worst that could happen well like you said they've had the shit kicked out of me on the rugby field what's the worst that happens i fall over so what i'll get up yeah. again and i think you're right when you start obsessing about what people think about you and focus on what you can do. It's that kind of control of controllables, isn't
1: it? Yeah, controllables is a real sports thing, and I think we say it's the same in business. You know, you worry about the outcomes all the time. I think it's about the process, isn't it? Mm. You know, the great thing rugby is you need so many different p- parts to work together. It's like a jigsaw. Um, you know, if your if your front row aren't pushing in the scrum and you're losing that, or the lineouts aren't going well, so you need a lot of things to come together. And I think you, that's the same in business. But you know, it's actually having the understanding of how it all works. And, and you're right, you know, at the end of the day, if I cared about what people thought, you know, less, I reckon I'd been a much better player. But it's hard to teach that to a 21 year old. You know, it's really hard, isn't
0: it? it is. You think that only comes with age with, you know, you, we've all talked to oh, God, I wish I knew that then. And our parents probably told us that then, but we didn't absorb it. So do you think it is possible to learn it early or is it just an age thing?
1: I think I think it's an age thing you know I mean I I think you know if I the kids are very conscious of how they look now you know as you can see I don't really give a shit how I look Is I mean I'll be facetious but
0: yeah you're not quite got the same hair that you did when we were at school have you yeah
1: exactly you know so it's look I mean they're young and they're going to be, they're going to go through what we went through and things matter a lot to them now. And they'll learn the same thing, but it's how do you find in the coaching then when you get a young person in business and that, you know, they want help and you, you basically, you're giving them the, the wise lesson of, do you know what, actually no one cares. So why do you, and you'll only realize this in 10 years time. How have you found a way to crack that with, with people where they go, actually you're right. Uh, I can do this to make sure I
0: don't care? Mm, not 100%. Not enough to put a bottle on it and label it. Um, I think when I'm doing a lot with exec- with you know, senior people around imposter syndrome and that a lot of that it, like, comes back to worrying about what, what people think.
1: Imposter syndrome? What's it?
0: Imposter syndrome. So That's basically the fear of being found out. It's the fear of, like, oh my God I'm, I'm running out for England I'm going to get found out I'm not as good as I think I it was. It's that fear of being found out and it's interesting to look at Some of the causes of that often come from our upbringing, from, you know, what people have told us about ourselves or one of the reasons for it is what we call the prodigy. So in a sporting term, compared to me, you and a a prodigy rugby player, you know, you're absolutely outstanding. But a lot of people who are, are a prodigy in the field, whether it's physical or mental, when they then come up against, as you talked about, that step up to senior players and they go, oh my God, actually their whole belief system that they were this good is rocked. So actually it's like, oh shit, am I as good as I think I am? That's the imposter syndrome. When you go, I'm not as good as I think I am, that self-doubt comes in. You start worrying about what other people are thinking about you rather than actually focusing on doing what you can do.
1: Yeah, I've not heard of the imposter syndrome. I like that. But yeah, I mean, big fish in a little pond and then suddenly very different, yeah.
0: So what would be one bit of advice that you would give to somebody, you know, whether that's a young rugby player coming through or someone in in the business world or just a parent you know what's one bit of advice you would give them about developing that mental toughness how can they build that resilience to dealing with setbacks and stuff
1: well i coach kids basically rugby and so i've learned that the first thing that comes out of my mouth is always positive so after a game we've lost we've played really badly the first thing i talk about is the good things i saw in the game which they won't see i'd say well you did well there. That was great. And I always start with a positive. I don't, I don't confirm the negative because I know they're negative. If that makes sense. Mm. That takes quite a lot as a coach to watch your players play very average and make mistakes and then come in and then say something really positive about it. But I do find that's quite a good rule of thumb. And I find that with my kids as well is that whenever they, um, whenever they are struggling or, 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 don't feel they've achieved what they could have achieved. I always try to uh, broaden it about how actually, and I, I I would might feel a disappointment with them, but I'd be saying, but yeah, you did, you've done this, you've got here, you've done that well, you know. So these are things that you can work on. But that's 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 good. look where you are now. You've done so well to get here. Don't put yourself down and that sort of thing. And I think they always need that comfort. You know, they don't need they don't need reinforcement of that feeling of failure if that makes sense. Mm. you could be the hard dad and say, yeah, that was awful. You were rubbish. You're, ne- you're never going to make it. Because that's in their mind. You know, they're thinking, oh, I'm not going to make it. I didn't do this well." I So you can't, I don't think you should reinforce that. You think you should try and challenge that, you know, kids are quite, they, they're, you know, they can take on board what you say, you know, they do sort of like listen to it and they go, actually, yeah, maybe you're right. You know, you question it. You question their darkness on, on their, you know, fear of failure or feel that they failed. And I guess really what I do is I sort of try to bring out the positive in it and then say, well, do you know what? That that means now you, you know what you have to work on. Thank God it was here and not next year when you're playing for England or something. Thank God we've, we've got that now. We know that's an issue. We need to work on that. And then you see them working on it. And then you hope that that won't affect their game. But I think it's um, mental toughness is you've got to be very careful these days of how you... Term it and the woke society has just gone nuts, is not it? You know, it's very different. I mean, our day was literally, you know, a kick at the backside, and it was that's that was how to get mental toughness. But I think the world changed a little bit now, and there's different ways of doing it, you know, M- much more beneficial ways of building confidence. You know, I would, I would hate my boy though to do what I did at say 15. You know, the doctor says you can't play rugby again because your neck or whatever. I wouldn't go in there, have some mental toughness like me and you need to play and you've got to fulfil your dreams. but You might be paralysed. I'd be like, right, you've got to quit. You've got to stop, you know. So different rules for me, uh, for them. I guess really that's 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 the thing. I think when someone has failure, how do you build the resilience when they're young? I think it's good parenting. I, I'm not professing to be a good pairing. I, I don't know the answer to that other than... Um, you know, always bring out the positives to start with. And then, cause they know, they know when they've messed up, they know when things aren't quite right. And you don't, they don't need, they don't need reinforcement of what they've done wrong. They just need someone to put, put a broader picture on it all, you know? And I think that's important as parents.
0: I think you're right. I think it's a fantastic message. I think something we should all do. You know, I look back at myself. I don't think I'm as kind to myself as perhaps I could have been with my failures. Um, I wonder if you were as kind. If you spoke to yourself like you speak to your, your kids now, or were you a lot, were you a lot tougher on yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, but we're talking about a different generation. I think you know. I think it's a different generation. I don't know what the millennials, millennials, how they would react to our tough love in our day it, it, to get mental resilience at school or in sport was was always about you're not good enough you're rubbish get down do no 20 get up you're not good enough you're rubbish you're rubbish that was it and what you'd have you'd have these people with that disciplinarial attitude and environment of okay i'll do that because that means i'll get better i'll train harder i'll do it i'll do it and then you sort of build up this fight because everyone you're not good enough, you're a failure right? I'll go again. And, and, and in some ways, and I don't know the answer is that nowadays no one does that because they see it as, they see it as dangerous, they see it as abusive, they see it as something you shouldn't do. And I sometimes sometimes do think that you know, a bit of tough love is important as well. I wouldn't get away from that. I, I just haven't worked out necessarily the way to do that. but I do think nowadays we're so woke in everything we do. You know and the question is i ask you then so what is the right thing to do you you go back to our day where it was you're rubbish you're not good enough to to nowadays which you're all amazing you're all winners you're all great and where's the balance i don't know
0: yeah it's a tough one i think you're right i think there's an element of learning to not quit to push through a bit but also as you talked about there about supporting kids know when they're doing wrong so rather than going you're rubbish you're, you know you're crap you can't do it it's about okay. It's cold, so what? Get out there because everyone else is cold. But also, along the wall, you know, now you've shown you do it. So it's that blend. You know, I think it's difficult. I think it varies from child to child. You know, there were some kids that are going to respond well, like you did, and others to that kind of attitude. And you know, and that that kind of worked for me as well. But there are others who I think probably broke. Um, so I think it's about very much around the individual. I guess the point as you talked about there is. You know that need to be kind to actually looking at ourselves as well and saying, okay, well, when I do something wrong, well, what did I do well? I know what I've done wrong. I know where I maybe didn't put the effort in or whatever it was. But okay, what did I do well and work on that to build my confidence back up rather than that was crap, Taylor. You know, you need to put your socks up, mate, and, and get on with it again. So I think there's a balance there, isn't there?
1: I think, I think also in, in management, one of the most important things I learned this probably the latter part of my career is that coaches to get the best out of the players have to treat the, the, the players differently. I was captain of Saracens and, you know, I had all his internationals around me and I knew, you know, that if I, if I told a player, you know, to book up and, he's, you know, he's a pain in the arse and stop messing around and get, get on it. You know, um, on the pitch, I knew I'd get a good reaction from him if I said it to another guy who was a Frenchman who didn't take Carney to any criticism. Would they'd literally walk off the pitch and have a, you know, they'd get really pissed off with you and, you know, and they couldn't take it. So I think it's like everyone is so different. You can't have the same actions from a manager to every individual because for some people it'll work and some people it doesn't. So there was one brilliant player, Chris Chesney, we used to have a second row. And uh, he was he had massive self-doubt. He'd get man of the match and then he'd come afterwards and he say, do you think I played all right? Yeah, you played all right. Yeah, you played well, you got man of the match. Yeah, but I missed it, the but they did that and we lost. Yeah, but you were great. You were, yeah, but I didn't do that. Am I going to get dropped? Am I going to get dropped? Now, some people would just play on that and say, yeah, you were shit, and yeah. But those sort of people need reinforcement all the time. Some people, you know, you don't need that at all. They're like, I couldn't give a shit what you all think, oh, I was great. You get the deluded person, who who thinks they were amazing and they missed three tackles and and they've got a completely different idea of how the match went and before the end of the season, they're gone.
0: Well, how about that for an opening conversation on the Mental Fitness Podcast. Um, Some fantastic uh, insights from Kieran there on his career and some of the takeaways for me on what he said were, I think, focusing on the process, the importance about that, letting ourselves go uh, and stop obsessing about the outcome goals. And really focusing on the process. I also like what he talked about, you know, the rugby players having to adapt on a weekly basis and learning to adapt. And I think there's a lot in business that we can take from that, even as managers, practicing that adaptability. What do we do if things change? A lot of the times what really stretches people's resilience is having to adapt on the fly to change. And it's that that fear of change. But if we build that in to how we operate, then we're going to become a lot more resilient anyway because we'll be used to dealing with that. So how can we start to do that at work and in our personal lives? And then also about reframing nerves. He was talking about when he was doing Dancing on Ice and how he saw those nerves um, as, this is great, this is good, I'm I'm enjoying this. And he reframed those nerves while a lot of his other competitors were really struggling with them and used those to empower him and to achieve that good performance. And I know that's something that Will Smith has talked about as well. So reframing those nerves as well. The other thing I liked about what Kieran said was about being prepared to fail not worrying about when he was falling over on the ice. And I think he also talked about putting a lot more practice in by being prepared to fail, by accepting the fact that he knew he was going to fall over and being willing to do that. And to go that extra mile and put a bit more practice in, that's what set him apart and allowed him to win the dancing on ice competition. Several takeaways there for us all to think about about how we can use some of those things to improve our mental fitness and get better. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. It only takes a moment, but it makes a massive difference to the visibility of the show and how many people we can reach. You know, our mission is to help people develop the mental fitness so that they can achieve more than they thought themselves capable of. So it'd be great if you could do that. A big thanks to Charlotte Foster Podcast for her hard work on producing the show. You can connect with her on LinkedIn. And the music for show is Where to Run by Strength to Last, created by the musical talents of Adrian Wolfer, a Canadian living in Nashville. Check out his music on Spotify and YouTube Music.